Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, it is always good to speak to any of our busy politicians in Washington. To do it two days in a row is a rare treat from the second uh, district of Arkansas, French Hill. French Hill, it's your fault. Arkansas has the snowiest uh, February like ever, like back to when the Hill family came over the border in 1812 or whatever it was. What's the snow like in Arkansas and what are you going to do about it to fix it? Well, by golly, it's all the responsibility of the politicians in Washington that caused this snow. Got that but we've right. had 15 to 17 inches here in central Arkansas, and our highways are clear, but our neighborhoods are still piled up uh, East Coast-style snow. But I've been shoveling and uh, doing the best I can. Yeah, I know. It's Republican shovel, Democrats calling the snow plow. Okay, let's move on from there. French Hill, we saw yesterday the GameStop hearings. I noticed the Washington Post this morning gives it essentially zero play. What happens next after that testimony? Well, first, I think uh, Mr. Tenev, uh, the CEO at Robinhood Market, certainly apologized for the fact that they had inadequate collateral on deposit with their clearing firms and DTCC, the Depository Trust, which then put their customers in a bad position in the midst of a bubble. That was a key element. In terms of the equity market plumbing, I thought the hearing demonstrated that it worked as we expected it to. But I think Maxine Waters, our chairman of House Financial Services, is going to have additional capital markets hearings. And from the discussion yesterday, Tom, I think she'll focus on payment for order flow, also reassess uh, short selling, what have been the changes since the 2004-2010 changes. Congressman, how concerned are you about the environment, the broader environment that's led to this type of speculation, both the fact that people have money as well as the apparent lack of risk uh, prompted by the Federal Reserve? Well, let's start with that, which is zero interest rates uh, in the Federal Reserve accommodative policy and household savings at the highest rate it's been in decades. This prompts people to reach out and take risks, just as, you, as you've been discussing the last uh, a few minutes. But the key thing for, I think, Robinhood investors are, we all know that investing is caveat emptor, but does Robinhood have the support for those new entrants to the investing market? Are they have the skills and communication on their platform to educate customers. I've been in this business for four decades and the paternalistic aspect of coaching and monitoring accounts on margin, on the use of options, on small dollar stocks are all fundamental to mm -hmm. retail investment brokerage. Is that really being adequately handled on an app-based platform like Robinhood? That was a key thing we talked about yeah. yesterday. Brilliantly said from the gentleman from the Delta Bank and Trust Company. Lisa, what I think is so important here is this strange phrase, due diligence. In the old days, there was a respect for it. And then to be honest, technology took over. How do you do due diligence given modern technology? Well, and that's exactly what Congressman was talking. Congressman Hill was talking about this paternalistic attitude, which is actually 
actually part of what the Robin Hood crowd is rebelling against. And exactly. so that balance, how do you ensure that you give people access to this dynamism, to this explosion in asset prices that has been fueled by the environment that you're talking about while giving them the correct due diligence that's complicated? Well, I think he should enhance his website. Uh, I asked him yesterday, does he have a call center? And the average Robinhood investor does not have someone to call during the business day. It's all done by email to their account. And that's inadequate in tough times. The call centers at Robinhood apparently are only granted to those with some extreme option approval by the firm. And I believe the CEO committed yesterday to much better consumer communication. And he made a, a comment about his uh, consumer education on his platform. But look, we all know that granting someone margin, granting someone option authority is a tough job just to do by algorithm based on the boxes checked by a customer. Congressman, before we let you go, can I ask a delicate question? It's not actually aimed at you personally, who obviously understands the financial industry inside out. These hearings, how can we make them better? Do you think they would be better if they were closed door and I'm here as a journalist talking about less transparency, but it just seems to me that sometimes these hearings become theatre and lawmakers, your colleagues, turn around and make it that. They might have some pre-existing bias, some song and dance. They want to clip the video and send it out to constituents. How do we make this better, more useful? Well, that tone is set at the top by the committee chairman, Maxine Waters, in this case, uh, loves clickbait. And uh, she also loves, uh, Jonathan, to use the full committee. Here's the way to do this, in my view. If you use the subcommittee on capital markets, which is, uh, I believe, chaired by Brad Sherman, you have a smaller number of people. You can spend the same amount of time, but you can multiple rounds of questions. And it's a way to have a much more constructive dialogue on Capitol Hill. But yeah. our chair has elected not to do that in some of these high profile matters. And, and John, that's brilliant. That's like the subcommittee we have here where you and Lisa tell me to shut up. I well, mean, Tom, it's great. I do think if you, if you look at the UK and I'll bring up the, the House Financial Services Committee is one thing. In the UK, we have the Treasury Select Committee and it is a smaller room. It's a smaller setting and it seems to be a little bit more direct. And I think that's what the congressman yeah, is alluding to. Congressman, it's great to catch up. Come back soon. Thanks, Thank you. Always great to catch up with you, sir. Republican from Arkansas. Right now, Ellen Zentner joins us with Morgan Stanley, their chief uh, U.S. economist, out with a bombshell report in adjustment. Uh, I believe it was yesterday looking for, as John mentioned, six and a half percent and even seven percent GDP, depending on where you measurement. But what's so important here is what Stephen Roach invented at Morgan Stanley, which is everybody feeds off everybody else's research. Ellen, your secret weapon on the pandemic is Matthew Harrison. He's definitive in biotech. And Matt Harrison is telling you he's seeing better vaccination numbers. Yeah, better vaccination numbers. Uh, we're getting shots in arms at a greater rate. Um, hospitalization rates coming down. Death counts are coming down. You know, that's what households really care about. And that's what gives them the confidence uh, to show in the surveys that we send out of households uh, that they want to get mm -hmm. out there. They want to return to, you know, put the word normal in quotes, whatever that means to each person is different, but they, they want to get out there. Right. Right? And maybe it's just coming out of this bad winter, but we've got the ingredients there 
uh, to make that happen. And for those of you on radio and TV, this is really important. We discover these economists before they're a chief economist, a fancy title like Ellen has. And Ellen Zentner was discovered with acute consumer analysis years ago. Ellen, does this devolve, this 6 and 7% GDP, does it devolve into a consumption boom? Uh, yeah, so that's what, so when you think about the forecast for the U.S. economy, right, has to be about the consumer because that's the, the lion's share of the economy. Um, but you don't just have the consumer this time, right? You've got fiscal stimulus behind it. So you've got a lot of buying power out there um, with pent-up demand that continues to build. And so the, the biggest uh, delta for the economy this year is what the consumer does as we're able to move more freely around the economy. Now that also points to the greatest risk is that you know confidence is rising. They're telling us in our surveys they want to get out and do things. And you know, historically, and you know this, Tom, sometimes we can say we feel one way and we do something else. No, no. So way. That, is, <laughs> that is a risk. And if that's the case, then you see the savings rate in the US just remain really, really elevated this year, and you don't see that calm down as people start to spend. Ellen, when did the unemployment numbers start to matter again? So the unemployment numbers, uh, you know, we're looking at two different ones right now. And I know we've discussed this in the past. So you've got, um, you know, the, the six plus percent on the uh, uh, you know, unemployment rate that's the most widely reported, that's the traditional measure that we use, um, but you're closer to around 10.5% for that underlying unemployment rate that you take into account all the measurement issues. Um, we do get improvement in the unemployment rate this year, but if we think about the, um, that broader measure, uh, the underemployment measure, the 10.5% comes down to six and a quarter by the end of the year on our estimates. So it's, it's four percentage points is a huge amount of improvement. That's still a really high unemployment rate by the end of the year. Um, so you've got a lot of that pent up demand coming through at a time when we still got supply constraints, especially on the labor side. And that's what plays into some of the inflation forecasts for, for inflation to rise. Alan, can you imagine the news conference at the Federal Reserve as they see six and a half percent GDP growth this year and start to look at five next year? What does that look like? Yeah, so I think it's it's a it's an evolution, right? So uh, even at the March, so at the March FOMC meeting, they're going to have to revise upward their forecasts, and some of that is just because growth is going to be tracking so much higher already in the first quarter because of the stimulus checks that came through uh, in that bill that was passed in December. Uh, but they may not pull in forecasts fully for what might be coming right around that time of this next fiscal stimulus package. So most likely then at the June meeting, they would have to revise upward their forecasts again. Uh, and then most likely only by September when their forecasts continue to track behind the economy. And this is what we normally see each year. They play catch up by revising higher. Um, but here's the thing. It's the unemployment rate that matters for them. Uh, and even though we have inflation rising uh, and reaching above 2% by the end of the year, uh, that's not good enough, and especially not in the context of a 6-plus percent uh, underlying unemployment rate. Well, Tom, this is the story. The forecast for the Fed right now and the degree they need to raise those forecasts, 4.2% real GDP year-on-year year exactly. in 21, yeah. 22, 3.2%. Compare and contrast the Fed with Morgan Stanley right now. The gap is this wide. The gap is this wide. And, John, as you mentioned, there's speeches next week. I'm sorry there's going to be a sentence here, a sentence there. So how do we navigate that Fed speak, Helen, 
when you start to get those cracks, not from the governors, not from the core of the Fed, Powell, Clarida, who we hear from next week, but from the Fed presidents who start to look around and see what you see, which is better growth? Yeah, so I think we'll see more of them speaking out and, and speaking their mind, but they'll, they'll temper it, right? So it's going to be very obvious that they're seeing better growth. Uh, but it's still going to be obvious to them that there's still uncertainty around how the vaccine rollout will progress. Will there be hiccups there? So we're still, you know, the, the cloud of COVID will be thinning as we get into the middle of the year. Um, but we're still going to be under it. Uh, and so they'll acknowledge better data, acknowledge the better growth, but that we're just not there on the labor market. So, I mean, they've, they've got a lot of cover here um, to explain that we're still not anywhere near that significant improvement. Um, that they say that they're looking for. Now, that applies to rate hikes. Um, for some of them, that does apply to tapering the balance sheet as well. But we do think um, that by the middle of the year, with again, with the cloud of COVID really thinning then, um, that more of them will be talking about balance sheet tapering could be on the horizon. Because at some point, you don't need to tighten policy, but you at least need to take your foot off the gas pedal. Um, and that will start when they decide to start tapering. And we think that tapering begins in the beginning of next year. Ellen, we also are going to be hearing next week from Janet Yellen uh, on Monday, and there is a big question. She said yesterday in an interview, the price of doing too little is much larger than the price of doing something big. How concerned are you about the price of higher inflation that perhaps is much beyond what people are expecting right now? So I think the, the risk there, of course, is that it rises more so than what the Fed can stomach. Uh, I mean, we have the highest inflation forecasts on the street, and it's still not enough to trigger rate hikes in our view before the third quarter of 2023. Um, of course, we can get that wrong. Could be that there's more supply constraints that last for longer. There's a lot of flow through from the dollar that we're seeing pushing import prices higher, and those tend to be very slow and lasting movements. But the Fed is there. They'd rather fight that battle. Uh, and Janet Yellen knows good and well what the Fed can do. They'd rather fight that battle of pushing down inflation if they need to, rather than continuing this multi-decade battle of trying to push inflation yeah, Ellen, you're channeling your inner Mario Draghi. I mean, you're going out to 23, and as you know, when the facts change, the news changes, and the actions of people change. What do you perceive to be the verbal path for institutional officers that demand market stability as they stagger to year 2023? They're going to be walking on glass. They will be walking on glass, and that is the big one of the biggest debates out there. The Fed I agree. is hell-bent on fighting any financial stability with macroprudential tools. Sometimes I think about macroprudential tools as, you know, isn't financial um, uh, stability like a frog in boiling water, right? So everything feels fine, everything feels fine, everything feels fine, and oh, my God, nothing's fine. And so can macroprudential tools really... Uh, exactly, well said. Will they recognize it fast enough? And so that's the biggest debate. They are certain that they can battle it fast enough and that they've got the tools necessary to battle it. Um, but you've got to step in with things like rate hikes, uh, even if to get into the cracks, if right, you've got uh, a labor market that's tight, you see you're running a high-pressure economy. If those inflationary pressures are coming through, you must be at maximum employment. Yep. And so you would be raising rates in that environment, and the market would be asking you to raise rates in that environment. The problem is if it comes way sooner than expected in the market that markets expect, and you get a very, very violent and volatile move in rates. 
And that's the conversation right now. Ellen, fantastic to catch up. Ellen Zentner, oh, Morgan Stanley, you. Chief Economist. joins us. Bob Miller from BlackRock, head of America's fundamental fixed income. That's an important position on the speed of change. Bob Miller, I love your note where you say events are moving rapidly and the Fed isn't. When does the Fed blink? Great question, Tom. Um, the conversation you guys were having preceding the, the most recent break would suggest that we're reading off each other's notes. Uh, I think it's coming. I don't think it's coming immediately. Um, it's certainly not next week at the testimony um, in front of Congress. But we think that at the March FOMC, the SEP that is delivered, the state, the, the economic projections that are delivered, are going. Our, our expectation is U3 for, for unemployment for 21 is going to be marked down to 4.8, so approaching the 4.1 longer run uh, rate, and for PCE is going to be marked up to 1.9, approaching the 2% target. So. Our, our simple conclusion from this is that the Fed is going to find it more and more difficult as March and April pass to continue to defer the discussion of recalibration of policy. So as you guys have said, there's massive fiscal in the system now, likely more coming relatively soon with the 1.9 package from the Biden administration, uh, potentially followed by infrastructure uh, later this year. But the dual policy impulse is, is just epic at the moment, at a time when vaccine rollout is proceeding at a very good pace. We're, we're, we're now running on average about 50 million a month, and that could easily become 60 million a month. So think about what that implies for just two months forward. And secondly, the weather is about to turn warm. I know it sounds um, uh, mundane, but it, it matters, right? And we're four weeks away from warmer weather that will allow people to get outside. So I think you're going to see this just a monumental amount of, of pent-up demand unleashed in the next couple of months, and it's going to make it hard for the Fed to say that substantial further progress, their phrase for what's necessary to consider recalibrating quantitative easing, the substantial further progress has not occurred. So, so I think it's coming. It's probably going to take a month or two. We need a clinic on duration risk, and I'd like you to offer that to us right now. Talk to us about duration risk, what it is, and how you're thinking about it at the moment. But, you know, Jonathan, I, I think one, one way to think about this is the Fed is really not your friend if you're a bond investor. Um, after, after 40 years of kind of being your friend, and we've been talking about this since the adoption of the average inflation targeting framework last summer, um, that was that was revealed at the August um, uh, Jackson Hole, but um, you know the, the Fed is is explicitly telling you they're going to target inflation at two percent and they're going to be willing to allow it to run above. Um, that's a very different regime than we've been in for the prior four decades. So I I think you have to you know when you're looking at long duration nominal bonds. Um, you've got to be pretty careful that you're being adequately compensated for both. Um, inflation risks from the normal cyclical economy, which, which frankly aren't, um, haven't been particularly, um, uh, you know, robust in the last couple of decades. But nonetheless, the central bank is telling you that they're now going to target higher inflation. And so I, I think it, I think it really matters and it, and it calls into question the, 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 the willing, you know, the, the, the comfort in holding long duration nominal bonds at relatively low yield. 
Bob, the Fed is not your friend, and yet don't fight the Fed. I mean, these are the sort of contradictory messages that we're hearing at a time when, yes, the Fed would like to see inflation run hot, but the Fed's balance sheet rose to a new record high in the week ended yesterday to $7.56 trillion. I mean, how much will they stay involved to suppress borrowing costs to allow this fiscal impulse to gain control and to be a friend, frankly, to bond markets regardless of inflation? Well, Lisa, I think that the, 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 whether the Fed is your friend depends upon the asset class you're talking about. I think, I think don't fight the Fed is still a, a rule number one in terms of risk assets um, and, and, and certainly supportive for the cyclical outlook. Um, that said, they have adjusted their reaction function in a way that makes them less, quote unquote, friendly for long duration, you know, bond management. So, but I think you have to differentiate between what, what asset classes you're talking about. That message is no longer as simply blunt as it, as it used to be. You know, I, the size of the balance sheet is going to continue to grow. Um, it's, it's, going to, it's going to start to grow at a slower pace sometime in the next few months. You know, think about this. The, 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 the 120 billion bonds a month that they're currently buying between treasuries and mortgages um, is, is – in order to scale that down um, over time, they want to go really slowly. They certainly want to avoid the 2013 experience. So our expectation has been they'll dial it back like $10 billion a month right, over the course of a year. Well, if you're going to dial it back over the course of a year, and in the middle of 22, you, so we expect the output gap in the U.S. economy to close this summer. And as new Secretary um, of Treasury Yellen said recently, with the with the upcoming fiscal package, she expects that we could achieve full employment in 2022. If you close those two gaps, you still want to be buying a lot of bonds. So, so our, our point is yeah. we need to slow the rate of purchase relatively soon so that they can do it over a long time horizon and not be buying bonds when we've achieved full employment. Um, interest rates are a totally different story, right? That's tied to the inflation outlook and the, the average inflation framework, too. So they've, they've driven a wedge between rates and QE, I think appropriately so. But the guidance around QE needs to change sometime in the next couple of months. Bob, this conversation's too important. Can you do me a favor? Just hold the line. We'll bring you back in just a couple of minutes' time. Bob Miller there, BlackRock Head of America's Fundamental Fixed Income. Bias there to go to the gentleman from Columbia University. I'm going to really listen to the vice chairman, John, for that one single sentence of nuance of how they adapt to a 5 or 6% run rate, real GDP, a nominal rate of what? 6, 7, 8% GDP. And Treasury yields that are breaking out too. Let's bring in Robert Tip, PGM Chief Investment Strategist. Rob, I've got one question to kick things off. When does Robert Tip become a buyer at the long end on 10s, on 30s, 130, 2%, etc.? Yeah, well, this is a great environment, and uh, I like answering that question when we've crossed above fair value in terms of yield. And I think in terms of the long-term outlook, I can't tell you if it's today, if it's tomorrow, or if it's going to be the fourth quarter, uh, but I think we've clearly topped fair value in terms of Treasury yields. Uh, what's going on here kind of looks like a, a behavioral finance fiesta, where people are looking at these rapid rates of growth. They're looking at a few of the high prints in CPI and PCE that we saw uh, back in the spring, summer, and they're extrapolating that into the future. And they're pricing in a string of Fed rate hikes that is 
unlikely to be a sensible central scenario. And uh, so I don't know whether we're going to get up to 150 uh, or even maybe higher, you know, if you get another infrastructure bill coming through. But I think we've already topped our value. And that means that looking out, you know, five years in terms of return, bonds are going to be likely to end up outperforming cash. So what have you been doing, Rob, in the first couple of months of this year as all this craziness has been going on around you? Yeah, well, you have to try to stay with uh, what makes sense, what's easy, what's doable. And uh, there's a good balance in the market between the economy doing well and spreads coming in, picking up yield in spread product across a range of sectors uh, while steering clear of any of the names or the sectors that are going to be having problems. And uh, that area of activity in bond portfolio management, the sector allocation, security selection, is a higher information ratio, higher hit ratio, a better area to focus anyhow. Um, but the rate side is going to drive returns on the uh, over the long term. And I think what you've had, frankly, in the crash of the COVID-19, uh, a good offset between interest rate and spread risk, where to the extent that people were losing on the spread side in bonds, they were making money on the interest rate side. In the recovery that we've had, yeah, you've had some increase in yields, but you've had a massive compression in spread. What's the bottom line? Bonds have done well. And looking forward, uh, you know, the next two to four years, you're not going to get that much spread compression, but you will get income from spread product. And so uh, that will help. Uh, but I think what you're going to get now, looking two to four years ahead, is a realization that we're not going to do 6% GDP for the next five years. That after this money flows through the system, there's going to be a slowing down, and the government markets are going to have to mark to market that these Fed rate hikes are not going to happen at anything near the pace it's priced in. And that's going to mean positive returns. So I'm just trying to parse through. There's a lot there, and I want to unpack it. With respect to the Treasury yield, I'm just curious. You're saying that we are beyond fair value, but yeah. it didn't seem like you were necessarily going all in. You're talking long term. Short term, how high can we go, and how much could it potentially challenge the flight into risky credit uh, that we've seen year to date? Right. So I, so I can't tell you that, obviously. And uh, but I can take a stab at it, please. And but what, what we've seen right from from that period exactly a year ago, February 9 to 19, the 100 basis point spring uh, swing in rates from 30 to 130. That specked out the whole future from the worst scenario to the best scenario that was likely at that time. But since that time, uh, we've had Washington, D.C. go Democrat. We've seen that they're able to, to spend money. We've seen vaccines developed uh, much to a greater extent than anyone would have uh, guessed, I would imagine, in, in a time frame not, not imaginable. But more important than any of that, we have seen people mm -hmm. take the money that they get from the government and their income and spend it like mad. So we're a few percentage points elevated in unemployment, but we're at record retail sales. So the market has to price in that psyche. And uh, I think, you know, we're in the zone. I, I would think that unless we get some other yeah. breakout and economic activity, you're not going to top 150 on the 10 year. It'll be very difficult to see if we mm -hmm. do top 150 to see that sustained. So I think we're basically in that last 25 basis point zone. Robert Tip, I want to go back to 1991. You dive into the business at First Boston. And what I find fascinating is all the math of Berkeley doesn't matter. It's what corporations do. When yields back up like this, what does supply do? What do CFO do? CFOs, chief financial officers, what do they do when yields back up? 
Well, CFOs, fortunately for the market, already did it, you know, raise money, right? That's what they do is when they're nervous, they raise money to make sure they survive. Uh, then when things are looking better and rates are low, they raise some more money in case they need it for a strategic acquisition. And a lot of that's happened. And uh, we've had some drop off in issuance. Uh, so I think the supply is, is going to be manageable on the corporate side. Uh, I think there are signs of, of excesses in the market. There's a lot of liquidity sloshing around. Uh, and the problems that the Fed uh, and these central banks are going to have is not going to be that they're going to create systemic inflation. Because inflation, underlying measures, I think, are already showing a tendency after bursts of activity to come right back down. And the same is true on the retail sales side. But I think while these central banks are shooting for these unreasonably high inflation targets and creating very buoyant markets, that that's going to be the problem. The game stops and all of these uh, phenomena that pop up that make them nervous, they're creating systemic risk. Rob, you sound like a treasury buyer, but you're not a treasury buyer. I'm just trying to reconcile it all in the last yeah, 10 minutes. Yet. Everything saying- you've said is, I, I want to buy treasuries and there's just something holding you back. Yeah, I mean, if you told me I had to do one trade right now, for the next two years, it would be long duration, right? It would be long fixed income versus cash on a diversified basis. Uh, if you said, well, you know, do you want to go to a maximum position here? You want to wait until you see rates crest or something like that? Uh, I think you would have to go with that because the economy has a lot of momentum. Uh, even just this retail sales number we saw uh, this week was spectacular, right? So uh, you don't want to underestimate reality. Yeah. But at the same time, what's going on in the markets, as you can see, it's extrapolating this pace of growth too far in the future. And we saw this exact phenomena play out 2016 to 2018, where the Trump victory, people priced in a new reality of high growth, a 3% tenure note. Yeah. By the end of 2019, that was all over. Uh, So it may or may not have made uh, make America great again, but it made bonds great again. And right now, this rise in yields to one a quarter or whether it's 150 is built back bonds better, right? We're in a zone where they're attractive. And two years from now, it's going to be like a lot of this optimism, I think, never happened. Yep. You're going to be back at the secular fundamentals of aging demographics and, and perniciously low inflation. Elisa's looking forward to having that conversation with you. Robert Tip, great to catch up. We all are. <laughs> Robert Tip, PGM Chief Investment Strategist. Thank you, sir. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.